The Christmas songs and even Christmas sermons, the added fellowship with believers, that long-awaited precious time with faraway family. And of course, we also enjoy the good food and giving to one another, and we should. Now, while there's no commandment to celebrate the birth of Christ, believers rejoice in that God became flesh. The eternal Son of God became the Son of Man. The creator of heaven and earth became like one of us, yet without sin. And this reality points us to the wonders of the God that we worship, to his grace and his mercy and even his justice. Yet the focus of many this time of the year is anything but the incarnation. Christmas to many is a fat man in a red suit. Flying reindeer, a time of exuberance and materialism, a time even to get drunk and party. What a contrast between the incarnation 2,000 years ago and today's common Christmas celebration. The contrast between the poverty of the Son of God, the Creator, in a manger and the exuberance of modern-day Christmas celebration between angels proclaiming his birth and flying reindeer between fanciful magic and the genuine supernatural life-changing supernatural between the gifts of the wise man gold frankincense and myrrh and cheap plastic toys between an ever-changing man in a red suit who supposedly knows when you've been bad or good and gives only temporal gifts to children, and the eternal Son of God who knows all things, who emptied himself of his glory, who took on human flesh and died for the sins of many, who offered one sacrifice for sin and forever sat down at the right hand of God. And he gives spiritual, eternal gifts to his own. What a contrast. Folks, there is no comparison. Yet the modern Christmas is the way of the world. To many, it's nothing more than a time of pleasure-seeking and self-indulgence. And then when Christmas is over, many experience sadness and even depression, knowing that what they've looked forward to for so long is now over. Knowing they have to wait a whole year to repeat the same process, to experience that emotional high one more time. Maybe you felt this sadness personally. It's a sobering reminder that everything this world has to offer comes up empty. It does not satisfy. It's never enough. Yet, as I've already mentioned, the incarnation points to the wonders of the God we worship. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It points to the mercy and grace of God. It points to the love of God in Christ. It points to the glorious perfections of Christ. It points to the willingness, his willingness to carry out the will of his father. 
to take on human flesh and bear the sins of many. It points to the true and lasting satisfaction that we have in Christ. Today's passage is called the Kenosis Passage, the self-emptying of Christ. This text is called by some the theology of Christ. John MacArthur is one of many who refer to it as such. It was likely a, actually a song, a hymn, sung in the first century church. So it was very familiar to those early believers. So would you please read along with me as I read this glorious passage Philippians chapter 2, and I'm reading this morning from the Legacy Standard Bible, the MacArthur MacArthur published New Testament. Have this way of thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, would you now bless your word. God, illuminate your holy word. That we would have understanding. That we would understand the glories of your son. His perfections. His sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're not going to intentionally exegete the whole or every detail of the text. It would actually take several weeks to just begin to do that. But this is somewhat of an overview, but hopefully it will be sufficient to give you understanding. So we find these verses in the context of a call for love and unity and care for one another in the body of Christ. That's in part the same call that we've seen in the book of Ephesians, to maintain unity and the bond of peace, to speak the truth in love even. Here Paul, writing to the Philippians, writes, have this way of thinking. It's translated attitude in the New American Standard. Have this way of thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the word, the one word translated way of thinking here is attitude or mindset or to be minded. We are to have the same attitude. We're to have the same way of thinking, the same mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then Paul reveals Christ's way of thinking, his attitude, an attitude that is, according to verse 4, What we're warned against, not merely looking out for one's own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. You see, the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ is a self-sacrificial way of thinking. It's the expression of the agape of God, the love of God. This is the very meaning of agape love. It is the one who is love. 
who expresses love. Philippians 2.6, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality, equality with God a thing to be grasped. That first phrase reads literally from the Greek text, who in the form of God existing. The word form is morphe. It means fashion, outward appearance, outward expression, manifestation. This is a statement concerning Jesus' pre-incarnate state when he was in heaven. Prior to him taking on human flesh, he existed in the morphe, the form of God. Now, this is not referring to his deity, but the outward expression, the morphe, the outward appearance or the outward expression of his deity. In other words, it's referring to his glory, his majesty, his reputation, his splendor. That's the idea. This is confirmed in the following phrases. He did not regard equality of, with God a thing to be grasped or forcefully held on to, but emptied himself. Christ in his pre-incarnate state, prior to taking on human flesh, existed in the morphe, the form of God. Existing in the glory, the majesty, the splendor, the reputation of God. He existed in the outward manifestation of his deity. <coughs> I hope you see that. Notice he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So based on the previous phrase, the equality here is not referring to his deity. He is deity. He is fully or truly God. But it's not referring to his deity. It's based upon his deity. It's the expression, the outward expression of his deity. So he did not regard his glory, his splendor, his majesty, a thing to be held on to, grasped. The word grasp is to seize upon with force, or to forcefully hold to. In other words, equality with God in his pre-incarnate state was not a thing that he held on to. He was willing to forsake it, to give it up. This is the way of thinking that we must have. And we do. By the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. He is the one that enables us to forsake all, to follow Him. To forsake what we think is rightly, rightfully ours. As God has granted us repentance, so we have died to self, to personal self-interest. We see the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not forcefully hold on to the expression, the glories that he had in heaven. Verse 7, but emptied himself. Emptied is the word kenosis. That's why we call it the kenosis passage. It is kenuo here because it's in the aorist indicative. It's referring to a, an, a past event that is complete. It is done. He emptied himself. It literally reads, but himself emptied, or but himself he emptied. 
Now think about it. The glory, the majesty, the splendor that was rightfully his, that he had possessed for all of eternity. He emptied himself of that glory. What a sacrifice of the one who is the very definition of love. Think about who Christ is. Not who he was in heaven, but who he was on earth and who he is today. He is the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the ever-present, the self-existing, the seity of God. He is faithful. He is good. He is unchanging. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign. He is just and righteous. Folks, he is holy, 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 thrice holy. He is merciful and he is full of grace and more. You see, he is perfect in all the attributes of God because he is God. He is divine. And in his incarnation, he possessed the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Yet in taking on human flesh, he did not hold on to that which was rightfully his, but he emptied. Kenosis, he emptied himself of the outward expression of these, these perfections. The radiant glory, the radiant majesty, the splendor of his perfections. The splendor that was due him. To see Jesus the Messiah in his incarnate body was to see an ordinary man. And that was prophesied by Isaiah Chapter 53, he has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. The very creator of heaven and earth emptied himself of his radiant splendor, his glory, and took on human flesh. And that's what it says as you continue in verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of man. So let me read it to you. I love the literal. I'm probably, I am accused all the time of being a literalist because I take people literally. And I don't understand what they mean because I'm such a literalist. And I get accused of that and I'm guilty. But let me read it. From the Greek text. But himself he emptied the form of a slave taking in the likeness of men. Makes more sense to me that way. By emptying himself, emptying himself of the outward manifestation of his deity, he exchanged the morphe of God, the form of God, or the morphe of a slave. The form of a slave. He took the form of a slave. He exchanged his divine majesty for human slavery. It's the word. It's not the word bondservant, regardless of what translations may say. It's not the word servant. It's the word doulos. It's slave. Doulos, a slave, owned virtually nothing. Understand what this is saying. A slave had nothing. Everything he had belonged to his master, even his own life. And see, Jesus, in his humanity, 
in his walk on this earth, owned no gold or silver or precious stones. He owned no house or property, did not have a place to even lay his head. He had no business. He did not even have a donkey, for he had to borrow a donkey on which to ride into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday. He and his disciples had to borrow a room for the Last Supper, the upper room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. While he obviously owned his clothes, and I guess that is all, he refused any property, anything that was absolutely or was not absolutely necessary for his earthly purpose, for his father's will. Think of the contrast. Think of the sacrifice in heaven. He existed in eternal glory, in divine perfection. It's manifested in heaven. And taking on human flesh, he emptied himself of that splendor. The king of glory became a doulos, a mere slave. He waived his rights as the son of God being made in the likeness of men. Speaking of slavery and what that meant for him. He was born under the law. Galatians 4.4 4. He was dependent upon and submitted to his own parents. Luke 2.51 He took the lowly occupation as a carpenter and was the son of a carpenter. Mark 6 He was betrayed for the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. He died a slave-like death to redeem us from the slavery of sin and death. And above all, he possessed a slave-like dependence as man on God, submitting to the will of his father, Isaiah 49. These are marks of a doulos, a slave being made in likeness of man, he took the morphe of a doulos, a slave. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now in human flesh as a mere slave, considered to be worth only 30 pieces of silver, taking the position as the lowly, low, lowest, lowest, of the low, give that out, as servant of servants, as slave of slaves. So he's already humbled himself. But now he further humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul here speaks of the obedience of Christ, which is the theme, by the way, of Romans chapter 5, verses 19 through Verses 12 through 19. But verse 19 closes that little section like this. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Talking about Adam, the first Adam. Even so, through the obedience of one, the second Adam, Christ, many will be made righteous. Ralph Martin, in his commentary on the book of Philippians, writes this. His obedience is a sure token of his deity and authority. For only a divine 
being can accept death as obedience. For, for ordinary men, it's a necessity. He alone, as the obedient son of his father, could cho- choose death as a destiny. And he did so because of his love, a love which was directed both to his father's redeeming purpose and equally to the world into which he came. I come to do thy will was the motto text of his entire life. He came in obedience to his father, demonstrating the self-sacrificial love of God for sinners, for helpless sinners, for sinners who are unwilling and unable who are in rebellion at enmity with God. Folks, this is the greatest story ever told. It's the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur writes, one would think that that somewhere short of that ultimate sacrifice, he would have said, it is enough. But his perfect submission took him all the way to death because that was his father's will. It's a story of obedience. While in the garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet in submission to God's will, his father's will, he acknowledged that the cup of God's wrath was not preventable as he prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was obedient to his father's will. The Father's will was and is His will because He is the eternal Son of God. Speaking of this heart-wrenching event, the writer of Hebrews says of our Lord, in the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Yet as the writer of Hebrews continues, he says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, the word complete, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. You see, because he was obedient All who obey him, all who obey the gospel of Jesus Christ have eternal salvation because he is the propitiation for our, the Jews' sins. If you read the context, there's, but also for the sins of the whole world, for those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Propitiation means to atone, to appease, to conciliate, to placate. In other words, that means that Christ satisfied God's righteous demand for the payment of sin. He satisfied the holy wrath of God that hung over us. The wrath that was upon us. He satisfied the wrath. And as Isaiah revealed, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He is the propitiation for our sins. 
He is the satisfying sacrifice for our sins. And we trust in him. There is no other one in whom we can trust. There is no other one who has bore our sins, who was without sin, who was qualified to bear our sins and to pay the sin debt. Verse 8b, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, there's many ways that man can be killed, be executed. But God's sovereign degree was that his son would be crucified. Crucifixion was the most excruciating, painful form of execution ever conceived of. Originally created either by the Persians, the ancient Persians, or the Phoenicians. But it was perfected, and all was it perfected by the Romans. The Romans only used it for slaves, the lowest of criminals, and enemies of the state. And by the way, no Roman citizen could ever be crucified, no matter his crime. The Jews considered crucifixion to be a form of hanging, and those who were hung to be cursed by God. Folks, Jesus took the curse. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, the law condemns us. The law is the righteous standard of the righteous God. It renders us guilty. Its terrible curse is the punishment that God demands. Yet Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He bought our freedom from sin and its punishment. This is the grace of God in Christ. So Paul could write that Christ has canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Folks, this is the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? This is Christmas. This is what we celebrate not just this time of the year. We're reminded in a particular way this time of the year, but this is what we as believers celebrate every day of our lives. No matter what's going on, no matter how difficult the way may be, this is the celebration. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus. It was demonstrated in Christ on Calvary's cross. Now you've likely noticed our manger in the foyer. In the place where the baby Jesus would have laid are two crowns. A cross, or excuse me, a crown of thorns, but also a royal crown. And that's where Paul takes us. Verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God highly exalted his Son and bestowed or graciously gave him a name which is above every name. But that name is not Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, as that's what it means, as it might appear here. The name is not revealed into verse 11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This name was given to him to emphasize his rank above all others. It speaks of his exalted position. He humbled himself. The Father exalted him. He was obedient to crucifixion. God, God highly exalted him above all. Remember our text from Ephesians chapter 1. God, he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, of, at the right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that's named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ has been exalted above every rule and authority and power and dominion and over every name. The glory he emptied himself of has been restored in his exaltation. He is Lord of all things so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, we're talking about the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the descendant of David that will reign forever because all God's prophecies are true. Every prophecy will be fulfilled. He is the head of the church, which is his own living body. It's an organism. And by means of the Spirit, possesses the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. So the church is filled with his perfections by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The church is filled with his power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Now in conclusion, based on what we've heard this morning, there's absolutely no room for teaching the teaching of deism. God, in other words, if you don't understand what that means, God in no sense has left us here alone and helpless. Listen to the words of John chapter 14. I will ask the Father, Jesus said, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and you and will be in you, excuse me. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A prophecy about the coming Holy Spirit after his glorious resurrection Jesus ascended to the heavenlies and gave gifts to men. 
Those spiritual gifts are received in the grace gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I hope you're seeing it. And maybe I can spell it out if you're not. We have absolutely no reason to have Christmas blues. To feel sad or depressed after this season. Matter of fact, we really have no excuse forever. For any time. We have every reason to rejoice. And we do rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. First Peter chapter 1. Christ lives in us. He is the life-giving spirit making us living stones in the temple of God. Paul speaking of the surpassing, excelling, exceeding, highly eminent grace of God in us proclaims this. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. The gift of the Spirit not only regenerates sinful men like you and I. The Spirit empowers us to live for Christ and gives us, gifts us to serve him. He has gifted us. We are believer priests offering sacrifices of praise in his glorious temple, the church of Jesus Christ. But he also, yes, he indwells us individually. He lives in us. He, in, he has, by the Spirit, regenerated us. He dwells in us. But the focus of indwelling, at least seems to me, to be in the church. He lives in the temple of God corporately. And do you not know that you, plural, are the temple singular of God? 1 Corinthians 3.16 So not only is Christ in each of us, he indwells his church. So he lives in us. We are his body. So the church should be precious to those who believe. I'm growing more and more to have a high view of ecclesiology of the church. Because I The more I study the word of God, I do not see how you can say you love Christ and not love the church. There is no doubt it is precious to God. It is set apart by him. For in the next verse in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, it's set apart, and that is what you are. Folks, the church of Jesus Christ is Christ's church. He is the head, he is the cornerstone. It is precious to him, as we're going to see Understand not only is the church the temple of God, the church is the body of Christ, we are his members Members of his body, representing and serving the supreme head. The church is the bride of Christ. We are the apple of his eye. And I can tell you this, Christ is a one-woman man. He is faithful to the church. He loves the church. Christ, or excuse me, the church is the household of God. He is our loving father. We are his reborn and adopted children. And not only that, we are joint heirs with his son. And we one day 
will share in his eternal glory. The church is the flock of Christ. He is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And when even one sheep strays, he goes after and rescues that wayward sheep. Folks, he is a good shepherd. He's not like a hireling. He does not run away from dangers. He owns the sheep and he has given his life for the sheep. He has bought them with his own blood. Folks, the church is precious to the Lord. Because Christ lives in each of us and in his church, and because he has been exalted to the heavenly realm, we are guaranteed eternal glory by the indwelling Spirit of God. He is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So yes, he came and took on human flesh. He was crucified. He bore our sins. He bore the wrath of God that I deserve, that you deserve, if you know him. He was exalted and given a name which is above every name. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But folks, because of his glorification and his ascension, he did not leave us as orphans. He reigns with us. He lives with us. He is the sovereign God over his church. He is head of the church. How could we feel blue after Christmas? If we feel blue after Christmas, it's because our affections are on the things of the world and not on things above. Rather, Christmas, Christmas should be a reminder that Jesus left the glories of heaven. He emptied himself of his divine splendor, his majesty, his glory. He took on human flesh as a slave, and he further humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So if you're in Christ, he bore your sins. He took God's wrath for you. God has highly exalted him and given him that name. He reigns in eternal glory, but he has not left us alone. Jesus did not leave us as orphans. He is with us. He indwells us individually, but maybe even more importantly, he indwells his church. God lives in his church. For we are the temple of God. The celebration of Christmas will soon be over. But can I suggest, Christmas is never over to those who believe. It's an eternal celebration. And we experience perpetual communion with God because of him and because of what he did. Thursday night, we will celebrate communion. By the way, most Reformed churches or many Reformed churches celebrate communion every Sunday, and we're definitely moving in that direction. The early church celebrated communion. It's a reminder, I should say, the early church celebrated communion every Sunday. 
It's certainly a reminder of the gospel because we need the gospel. We need to remember the Lord's death until he comes. But we have perpetual communion with God and therefore one another. It's eternal. No reason to be blue after Christmas. It's reason to rejoice. Because we have just come, or we will have just come through, a celebration that reminds us of what matters. All the things of the world are temporary. One day they're going to burn up. All those gifts. What does it really mean? Folks, we have the gift of the Spirit living in us. We have the gift of Christ who bore our sins, who emptied himself of his glories, who took on human flesh and bore our sins and has been highly exalted. That's what matters. This world doesn't matter. It is so temporary. It is a fleeting moment in time. But God's outside of time. Time was created for us. So what I'm trying to say in closing, Christ makes all the difference in the world and in the world to come because he came. Yes, he became a little babe. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. And he went to the cross. He did for you and I what we could never ever do for ourselves. Taking the wrath of God upon himself. So that that wrath, that cup of wrath, when Christ said it is finished, turned the cup upside down. Not one drop left. For those who believe. Not one drop left. For the elect of God. Christ came and bore our sins. And nothing will ever be the same again.